Capes on the Couch podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Dr. Issues is a psychiatrist, but he is not your psychiatrist and does not have knowledge of your individual situation. For any personal mental health concerns, please consult your own health care providers. For medical emergencies, please call 911 or the designated number in your area immediately. Remember that you are not alone and help is out there. Hello and welcome to Capes on the Couch, where comics get counseling. I'm Anthony Sitko. And I'm Dr. Issue. This is issue number 108, and it's a very special I- issue. Uh, we are very excited to do another one of our creator interviews. We are speaking with the incredibly talented Philip Kennedy Johnson. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, so let's just jump right in then. I guess for for those of our listeners unfamiliar with your work, I want you to just give us a quick synopsis of some of the things that you worked on and, and how you got started in writing. Like, what's your background? Um, well, I started kind of as a way to help out my brother, who's an artist. He he uh, was just trying to get into the comics biz and didn't really know how to get going. And I'd always really enjoyed creative writing, hadn't done it in forever. So my day job is I'm, I'm a musician with one of the military bands in D.C. And I was already in the service. And um, we kind of devised this plan for him to to join the Army as an illustrator, get trained up in all the software that he needed. And then he'd have the GI Bill to go to art school. So he just moved in with me and started getting in shape and um, I helped him get ready for this, all the tests he needed to take. We were going to comic conventions, just kind of educating ourselves on how comics work, um, how the business works, met a lot of people. And then he he joined like he planned to and he started getting busy with other stuff. And I started looking, I was having a great time writing for him and started looking for other artists to write for. And ultimately that became Last Sons of America, my first printed book with Boom Studios, which led to more books at Boom, like Warlords of Appalachia, uh, some licensed things like Kong and Adventure Time and Planet of the Apes. And somewhere along the line, I got noticed by DC and Marvel and I uh, did an Aquaman annual. I did uh, a short war story for Marvel. Um, I've done at this point, I've done Marvel Zombies Resurrection. I've done Captain America and um, a, a Batman Tales of the Dark Multiverse story I'm very proud of. I've been doing The Last God, my uh, creator owned series at uh, DC Black Label for for some time now and that's about to wrap up and um now i'm i've been announced as the writer for superman and alien this year so super stoked that is that is an amazing uh, career trajectory and uh you know we're gonna we'll sort of work our way through that um so last sons of america was the the first thing that i read that you had done and the story just the conceit of the story is fascinating and I was wondering, uh, what was the impetus for the story? For those, again, unaware, the, the gist of it is that there uh, was a chemical attack, I believe, Agent Pink, and it renders everyone in the United States essentially infertile, uh, men and women, I'm, I'm presuming. And so these two brothers are operating. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you explain it. But what was the impetus for the story? Um, at the time, <laughs> I mean, as a... Uh... As a psychology podcast, you guys can dissect my own uh, influences. I had there's a lot of things in my brain at the time, kind of percolating together and becoming. They kind of came together into the story as it as it became. Okay, so in twenty in twenty ten, I was just getting getting started, really writing stories for for anyone who wasn't my brother. And um, my at the time, my wife and I were were uh, having trouble getting pregnant, and it was I was. I'd pretty much accepted by that point it was not going to happen. 
And I was also doing a lot of anti-human trafficking work in the Baltimore area, just volunteer work. And at that same time, there was this big um, earthquake in Haiti that became this really terrible humanitarian crisis. And I remember hearing a piece on NPR about um, a church, like a mission group that went down to Haiti to help. And ostensibly, they went down there to help orphaned kids get adopted elsewhere. But they ended up grabbing a lot of kids who still had families. And there was a lot of different accounts of how it all went down and what they really did and their intentions. But in the end, they were trying to smuggle children out of out of Haiti's borders, which is super shady. And then I started I um I started looking more into the I mean, I the human trafficking issues that I knew about were stuff that were happening that was happening mostly in the US, like with kids who had been trafficked as children, often by their parents, or people who were trafficked to the States from other countries either for who brought here under false pretenses as as uh, as laborers but uh, or you know sex trafficked people um but the the for profit adoption industry was an aspect i hadn't really thought about much um didn't know anything about and so i started doing more research into that aspect of it and found out some pretty disturbing shit about how adoption really works and obviously, there I understand there is a complicated issue. There's people here that need kids in every, you know, all countries. They want children; they can't have them themselves. But uh, there are also some shady things that happen, like further down that that pipeline. Like there are a lot of kids who are sold by their parents, who whose parents just cannot afford to have them, sold for almost nothing to uh, to orphanages or you know churches or whatever, and then they sell those kids to adoption agencies, you know, companies that need kids to, in turn, you know, sell to Americans or whoever. Um, it's just super screwed up. So these, there's a lot of people who, who have these stories supposedly of their, of their parents dying. That's all BS. And there's actually a, a lot of those, those kids who get adopted. you still have families back home that would have preferred to keep them and just didn't work out that way. So my issues of infertility and uh, human trafficking that was in my brain all the time at that point. And coupled with this this thing that happened in Haiti, all kind of came together and congealed around this idea of what if human trafficking was the only way we could have families anymore? Like what if human trafficking became legit and that's how families were made at that point? And the U.S., which, you know, from certain from a certain perspective can already be seen as kind of this, well, what's the word, consumer of, of people, uh, this, this country that in some ways can just kind of chew people up. What if it literally became that? Thing, what it became a, a consumer of children, where people, you know, killed kids were sent here like furniture, and that's just how families were built, and that became the, you know, the source for the story lessons of America, a world in which Americans can't conceive naturally, and human trafficking becomes how it works. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it it was just a a very hard hitting read, and the the social commentary I thought in it was absolutely fascinating, particularly on on white America and what the idea of, because obviously it's, it's impacting everybody in America, but there's, there's comments throughout the story that the lighter children are valued more than, yeah. the, than the darker children. And it's just the scene in the Merc, the Mercado, just uh. as, I mean, I'm, I'm a parent, very young child, and Doc has a, has a nine-year-old. And so just seeing just all of the, the family stuff just was a major gut punch to me. It, just like I said, it was absolutely 
captivating uh, from from that perspective. So, you know, Doc, I'll I'll let you sort of chime in. Well, well I, I mean, just the idea that we we always have these tropes, you know, the children are our future, you know, make sure no child left behind, whatever. I mean, we have we have all those things that we say. And yet to that point, especially when you put the the United States ultimate capitalism kind of spin on things, you certainly can see how that can become a pretty deep rabbit hole. And I, I really appreciate it in the story. You know, it focuses initially on on, you know, one child that is in theory being basically being sold. And then the family just saying, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. We really don't want to do this. And I remember the fact that it was supposed to go to this stereotypical middle-class couple that wants a child and and that's fair. But at the same time, I, I even remember one of the brothers just saying like, well, wow, you've, you've doomed your child to poverty. And and I, I, I thought to myself like, man, oh man, is that, is that, that type of system? Like, is that, is that really what we're, we're looking at here, like literally just you, you're I know I've used this term on the podcast before the genetic lottery, like it's just a matter of the location of where you were born and what socioeconomic circumstances and then everything else from there is kind of a, a you know, just it's a random crapshoot. But then what you do with that setup from that point forward, it's something where cultures value those things differently. In many cultures, it's more like, OK, what do we do together? Like, what do we do as a group? Unfortunately, a lot of cultures don't have it set up that way. It's more like, well, what does the dictator say that everybody's supposed to do as a group, uh, as opposed to the U.S., where it's more like, hey, whatever you can do, you know, on one hand, it's a good thing. You have the ability to do anything. The actual resources, uh, well, that's up to you. And it's not exactly strewn at your feet. So it, it just having that full spectrum and, and a story that's so tightly connected and about, what was it, four books, like, you know, for the total volume, like, you know, just to have all of that done so well packed, I think was impressive. I admit that I also deal with this on a professional basis in the sense that I often do shifts actually today. I just did a shift for psychiatric emergency room or a few of them simultaneously through tele, you know, telemedicine. And that's one of the things that we have to screen for, especially since a lot of people come in for drug related issues. And so, you know, that is something that the world is not nearly aware of as much as it should be, at least on the on the protection side. Oh and now God. we're we're so true. Yeah. And and we're really trying to to do a better job even at the at the most basic primary care level. The idea that the only contact that some of these children get or some of these adolescents get is through an emergency room visit where they've already been told they can't say anything or else they're going to die. I, I mean this you know, this is something that people I don't think realize is as big as it is. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, like when I was finding out more and more about, you know, when, when listening to that piece, I um, I just realized how ignorant I had been. In my, in my mind, I, you know, kind of knew it all about human trafficking. And I was this, that, that had kind of become my my passion at that point, um, was anti-human trafficking work in the States. And um, the more, as I'm sure you guys have found out in, in your own life, like basically the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know anything. Like, like it's the, the more, the better informed you become, you realize, you know, less and less of what, of everything that's out there. And I, I just had this whole world open up in front of me, like, Jesus, I thought I knew, I mean, I was already, when, when you start doing a lot of human trafficking work, like a lot of it, you just think about the darkest crap all the time. It just consumes you. And I was, for a while, I was just thinking about, you just think about rape all day. Like it just, it just is so crushing. Um, until I, 
ultimately had to kind of take a step back from, I guess, I was like, I can't, I can't live my life. Like I can't function. I just went so deep into it. And just finding out everything that I I did about overseas adoption stuff is just, it's just hard. Like how, how hard people have it and how, how fortunate we are and how screwed so many people are uh, elsewhere and here too, but, but elsewhere, God, it was just, it became this thing, it became the story that I just like had to tell. And I kind of dressed it up in a genre story. Like basically, well, I'll give it this high concept premise. Like here's a little bit of sci-fi, but really it's all true. Um, it became a story that became very important for me to tell. No, absolutely. And and I was explaining to my wife about it today because she was asking me, oh, who are you talking to? And you know, who are you interviewing for this episode and everything? So I was telling her about Last Sons and how, again, outside of the the whole Agent Pink thing, this is a very realistic story. It is very rooted in some some very, as you say, dark and and hard hitting stuff. Now, Jackie and Julian, I love their dynamic. And and listening to you at the start talk about working with your brother and wanting to sort of work with him on this stuff, it now puts the relationship between Jackie and Julian. Uh, and the understanding that they have in a little better light. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. Okay, you're really close with your brother because I, I, I absolutely love the the bond between Jackie and and Julian. That Jackie is ever the older brother. He's the the big brother, but Julian is sort of dare I say the smarter one, and he's sort of able to look beyond the the next step. But what was sort of the the driving force uh, behind? how that dynamic, uh, was, was conceived. Yeah. I mean, you totally nailed it. I, um, you people see right through me. Uh, <laughs> I, I forgot to mention my, um, uh, my relationship with my brother when I was talking all the ideas floating around in my head at the time. That was, I think, I think Bill was living with me when I came up with the idea for that story. And the dynamic is not as simple as it is in, in the book. Um, I mean, in the book, you, you could argue that those two guys are, they kind of make up like one complete person. I mean, Jackie is the tall, good-looking one, physically capable, and yes, yeah, seems to be the, the the caregiver, not caregiver exactly, but like the the one who's got it kind of he's like put together, kind of looks after for after the two of them. But Julian is not only smarter, but also like the the moral compass of the two, and he's he's the one who's who physically needs help to get around, needs help putting his shoes on and stuff. But he's but he knows what to do. He speaks the language, and he's he's a, a much more sympathetic character in a lot of ways. And you know, Jackie's kind of a douchebag. And since I have it on good authority that Dr. Issues is a jazz fan, I'll say that Jackie and Julian were named. At the time, I was listening to, I play trumpet myself, but I was listening to a lot of jazz saxophonists. Mm-hmm. And Jackie and Julian are named after two of my favorite jazz saxophonists, uh, Jackie McLean and Julian Cannonball Adderley. So, yeah, I um, I wouldn't say that my brother Bill and I make up a single entity or that like all my or that all my flaws are his strengths and vice versa or anything like that. But um I will say that people that that know us, nobody says, oh, you look so much alike. Like literally no one. We, we do not look alike. We don't really talk the same or live our lives the same way. But when we're together, it just sort of makes sense. Like it's, we just sort of click and we, we like a lot of the same shit and we'll, we'll just kind of talk and we'll talk in similar ways about certain things, about, about books or movies. It's just so fun to talk to them, even though we live our lives in completely different ways, have different um, – 
different strengths and weaknesses, of course, but also different values. And we're just very different people. But when we're together, it sort of just makes sense. And it's just a real joy to be around him. I had a big hand in raising him when he was little. And um, I just love being with him. So yeah, that I, I wanted the I wanted the story to have a you know to have a subtext that mattered, to have a message that mattered. But at the center, it's got to be about characters still, right? And I, I wanted it to be about these two brothers at its core. And um, and that was that's how it ended up being. Now, well, that that certainly uh, comes through uh, in in the story. You know, you definitely get the the notion that they they do care about each other, they do need each other, even if they don't necessarily always see eye to eye. And it seems that they have to have each other's backs for one reason or another because Jackie has to physically help Julian with a lot of the stuff, but Julian has to always be looking ahead to figure out what the next step is to keep Jackie out of trouble. So I definitely enjoyed that dynamic. A thing that happens during the book that uh, I really wanted to explore is that when they, for a, you know, spoilers for anyone who hasn't read it, I guess, but not nothing specific, but um, at some point in the story, they, they're separated. They, so Jackie, the, the tall one, he's, um, you know, more physically capable. He's also more aggressive, right? He's, uh, he's the one that's more willing to, you know, get in a fight or whatever, which I mean, Julian didn't really have that luxury. He's a, he's a short person, but also has, has like a, he's not, I mean, he, as anyone can plainly see in the page, he looks very much like Peter Dinklage. It was designed after Peter Dinklage to some degree, but he's not just uh, a, a short and otherwise whole person. He, he has other little like physical you know, limitations, yeah. limitations. Yeah. So he's, he's not the fighter. That's Jackie. He's the one that he's the rough and tumble guy. And Julian is a much more, is a, is a very compassionate character in general, just cares about people. And for a while they're separated and we see Julian become much more aggressive and we see him kind of get in fight with somebody. Okay. You start to see him take on more uh, characteristics of his missing brother. And you start to see Jackie kind of grow a soul somewhat and start to care about this kid that before he just saw as, you know, Jackie sees himself as a retailer. He's just collecting kids to sell them. And that's what he does. He could be collecting, you know, hardwoods or whatever. It doesn't matter. It could be anything. And um, for him, it's just kids. But then he starts to actually care about this kid. And uh, you see both of them become more like the other brother. And when they come together again later, they're both more complete as, as people. Yeah, definitely. Another character that I thought was very interesting uh, was Harper Rowe. And so she's kind of the double agent of sorts, dare I say, not, not trying to spoil too much, but she's definitely, uh, she comes across this one way initially, and then she's, she's playing the long game. Where did the need for that sort of character and her situation come into play? Um, that was more of a world building thing at first. I wanted to see a little bit more like, well, we, I mean, we just need another character, someone that would betray them, but I wanted to see more of like the more of the job that those guys do. Like if you only ever see, like you see them, you see, uh, you see Ro, you also see, um, I forget the guy's name, the other kid retailer, yeah. uh, the, the D-bag guy who comes in their door. I forget his name. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to show a little more of this business that's, that they're in, you know, those characters kind of flesh out more of the, the world that we live in and what their role in it is. You know, somebody that they used to work with in the company that has since moved on is doing bigger things. And then we see the relationship with the, you know, the government and just a, a way to to build out the world a little more. And you see a more complete picture of what it is. So you don't only see the two brothers. Yeah. The, the thing I was just going to jump in a little bit with that is it reminded me of, and I apologize for relating everything to, to a lot of the work I did. It reminds me of like child protective services versus like private therapists versus, you know, these, these other like more international agencies where 
you know, they're they're a conglomerate that can get things done. But at the same time, you're not exactly sure what their motivations are and just how all of these things kind of combine to to make everything work. I mean, it doesn't always work great, but you deal with what you got. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a depending on now, as you guys probably know, the story is is in development right now for film. And if that if that continues and if it gets made, I think I'd say it's very likely that we'll see a last son sequel. And if, if that happens, we will see more of Roe and um, that company that she's with and how that all goes down. I actually was not aware that it was being developed, but it's funny that you say that because as I was reading this, I was like, this could very easily be a movie. It's just very tight. It's very cinematic in the the scope and the storytelling. And and again, all the issues that we were discussing earlier, uh, very much relatable to the world in which we live. And I, I certainly hope that if and when it does get made into a, a movie, aside from, you know, definitely being there to, to buy a ticket, um, I hope that in some way this helps to spread awareness and shed a light on some of these issues that we're discussing and that some resources can be put towards helping the victims of of human trafficking and and these uh you know these horrible crimes that as you said are are happening everywhere and that hopefully you know we can help use the story to shine a light on it and and make the world uh, a little a little bit brighter thanks yeah um, I, that is the hope um so i, I want to pivot now then to uh, to kill a man i loved the story and i know that this is actually uh our our major patron uh, ariel uh, was the one who who finished reading this and wrote a, a lengthy review on it. And that's sort of how uh, she mentioned uh, us in speaking with you. And that's sort of how you came into uh, our, our circle. But I, like I said, I, I loved uh, this story as well. And I'm, and I'm not just saying these things because I, I, I'm not trying to sound like I'm blowing smoke up your ass. <laughs> I, I promise. But this was such an incredible story and one that I also think frankly, can and should be adapted into film. What was the genesis for this? Because I read it as a commentary on the hyper-masculinity of MMA. And I'm, I'm, I'm even going gonna, gonna to jump in right here because... Uh, you're, you're the MMA guy, so well, I no, defer no, no, to you on, on this. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not in, I, let me make this clear. When Anthony says that, I can't pretend. Like I don't fight, I, I don't train for it or anything. It's just that my parents still have the visage of my dad holding me as a little baby watching fights on on television. I grew up with this and and it's something that's core to me. And, and a lot of people think it's like the antithesis of what I do as a doctor. But at the same time, for whatever reason, it's just something I can't let go. Uh, just that spirit. But one of the stories that he always told me about way before my time was Emil Griffith and Benny the Kid Perrette and that horrible scenario of everything that happened. And there actually, there was a documentary even that I, I watched about that afterwards because they, they wanted to get his perspective and how he felt. He actually m- met the offspring, the, the, you know, the family member of Benny, the kid Perrette. Just that, you know, spoilers. Basically, there was a, a, a slur used. Slurs for um, 1960s. I know, I know. Uh, but the point is, um, it's pretty much the similar scenario with this book where uh, the fighter dies after you know, he had very clearly made a lot of derogatory comments. It's just that this has a much different twist in that the offspring uh, of that deceased fighter uh, is also gay himself and, and gets outed by, you know, his future opponent and and all of the aftermath. And here's the problem. It's not a problem, but here's the thing that I noticed. The entire time I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is 100 percent exactly the way I think a lot of it would play out. 
<laughs> in terms of the setup. Yeah, thanks. I um, yeah, that sucks. But you're probably right. I first of all, that's cool that you used to watch, like you grew up in Washington Vice and all that. I um, I've never been able to really get into most sports as a viewer. Like to, I can't get into watching golf, basketball, football. Anything that just like involves a ball to me just always feels like kid stuff. I don't know. I I totally understand. I'm not I'm not throwing shade at anybody who likes any kind of sport. It's all good. But I just I personally cannot relate to it. Um, having grown up kind of out in the country and never really had a crew, and but fighting just makes sense to me. <laughs> Maybe that makes me a savage, but I just to me it's like a just a it's just a contest that has real world applications. I feel like it's, I feel like uh, self defense is important and. I just always, I just love watching the fight and it's something I enjoy practicing myself, like sparring is something that I think is very important and I'm teaching my son stuff now and I just love MMA. And yeah, it is, it was meant to be kind of a, well, I, I can't take, I can't take credit for the the basic premise of the book. Um, it was brought to me by Steve Orlando, my co-writer. And Steve is himself an important voice of LGBTQ in, in comics and he and I met, well, we, I mean, we had kind of met in passing before that, but never really got to know each other at all until Albany Con a few years ago. And we have a great mutual friend in Ron Mars, and he he lives up that way, and uh, Steve used to as well. And so <clears throat> I'd heard a lot about Albany Con, so I went up there as a guest, and um, that, let's see, that first night, we were all hanging out, and they they um, had a little spread for us at the hotel, and Steve's a fancy pants as far as uh, food, and he was like, this is these wings aren't good enough. Let's go someplace really nice. And so he he had some dive place in town that he knew. I guess he'd gone to school there, and he was like, "This is another place we got to go to." So we, he brought us all to this other place, and we got a just a ton of wings. And why, and there was a fight on that night. And that's when I found out that Steve was starting to get into MMA. And I was I was I was already by that point I was sparring like every week. I mean like every week fighting with someone. And um, Steve um, had been a, a wrestling fan forever. And was getting into MMA then, which I, I don't regard as the same thing at all. I kind of I can't get into uh, wrestling, but he's he's a huge fan. Just the pageantry of it and stuff, I just don't get it. But Steve loves it, and at some point he made the jump to MMA. And we were talking about that. I was kind of giving him shit about wrestling, and he was kind of asking questions about fighting and talking about his favorite fighters at that point. And we just watched, we just bonded over over the fights on pay per view and eating wings till we died. And it was it was really fun. And and not long after that, he had an idea. He had watched Creed. And similar to to how what I was talking about with the impetus for Lessons of America, he's had a bunch of ideas in his head that kind of came together and, and became the idea for Kill a Man. He was also also became aware of the the Emil Griffith story and how he had essentially beaten a man to death after calling him a, a gay slur. Benny yeah, Benny died later of his wounds, um, not in the ring, but he, you know, he never recovered. And um how powerful that was for him and how it kind of shaped his life between that and just loving the movie Creed and Steve's own experiences as a, as a bisexual man himself with his own family and his own life. He just kind of, it all came together in this idea that he wanted to, to, to write, but he wanted to co-write it with me as someone who really knew the ins and outs of, I mean, I'm not a, you know, I've never fought in UFC or anything, but I just know a lot about it, not just in the, in the cage, but also just the, the business of it a little bit. And he wanted to write it with me. So we came together and, he was like, well, how would the story work? And I was like, well, I'll tell you what would happen in real life if this happened. Like if this guy got outed, the way MMA culture is, I think that, I mean, there's literally not a single, to my knowledge, not a single out male queer fighter in the UFC. And I just find it hard to believe that there's literally no one. So, I mean, it's, if you're a female, it's cool. 
But uh, for a guy to be queer and fight, that just there's like this this dissonance that just doesn't make sense in that culture. So yeah, I feel like if somebody was outed against his will as gay before his big title shot, I feel like there would be this big kind of you know hubbub about it. So we explored that basically. So we take the um, kind of told the story of this these pioneers in the sport and ends up getting beaten to death in the ring as a, as a result. Generation later, the bigot's son who watched him get killed in the ring has grown up to be gay himself and has obviously kept that way deep down because he's grown up hating this other dude, but at some point recognizes it in himself and couldn't tell anyone because like this huge shameful lie. And when he's, when it's revealed who he is and what he is, he loses his endorsements. He loses the support of his organization. He loses his fans. This kind of story is made up. It's like, oh, well, actually, there was an illegal shot earlier in the fight. So now he's not going to get his title shot like he was about to. And then the only guy, the only trainer that will touch him is the guy who actually killed his dad back in the day. So it's kind of like the Rocky story. But if if he had to train with, you know, if if Creed, instead of training with Rocky, had to train with Ivan Drago. <laughs> You know, and um, yeah, that was kind of that was the basis for that story. Yeah, I, I could definitely see the comparison to the Creed story there. And I do know that at least some of that stuff was discussed in, in yeah. Creed 2 with the whole Creed versus Drago's son and, and the legacy and everything. My question, just a, like a side note, uh, the promoter whose name I forget is basically like Dana White turned really horribly evil, right? That's basically or, how you or or Data White kind of like just amplified just a smidge. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to. I'm not. I'm not blowing anything up. I'm not blowing anything up. I'm just look. There's so much, be it MMA, be it other martial arts, be it boxing, all of it. There's just this side to it that just has this feel where, as with many things in life, like the bottom dollar comes above all else. <laughs> that comes across very clearly no, with absolutely. this. Absolutely. And, and I know that Dana White is not exactly the most beloved figure, but I was reading this and I was like, so this is Dana White as an unabashed heel. Like that's, <laughs> I mean, like yeah. Dana for, White just didn't care what he was perceived as. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, the character's name is Terry Brown. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, okay, let's, let's find another unisex first name and another color and like, we'll just, we'll just, Put this, put it on his face, like this is who it's about. Yeah, I don't know Dana personally, so I can't speak how how he, you know, how he is in real life. But I know that fighters get grossly taken advantage of financially. I know that there's a lot of the people that fight, even in the UFC, are just not making any money. I mean, they have, they, got, they might make if you're in, on the undercard on a UFC event, even if it's a pay per view event. Let's say like you're you're on. McGregor versus Poirier, two, and you're like the first fighter of the night. Those guys might be making twenty grand, and out of that, they got to pay their own fight camp. Usually, they're they're paying their own travel to get there, or at least they were recently. Assuming that's still the case, they got to pay their effing plane ticket to get there. I mean, sometimes they're making literally nothing yep. to fight for the UFC. It was like this multi, this insanely huge organization that's making so much money. And McGregor's getting, you know, all the purse. Millions. The, the big name fighters are getting all the money. Yeah. I mean, there are fighters who are doing great, but you got to be not only an amazing fighter, but you've also got to be able to sell yourself. You got to market yourself. You got to make yourself into a superstar, like a Muhammad Ali style cult of personality. 
to make any kind of money there. I mean, or just be such a dominant figure in the sport that you just can't be denied. Like, you know, like GSP did when he was fighting, like he was not that he, I mean, he was also a colorful personality in his way, but he wasn't like a big trash talker like McGregor or like this right. big, you know, this person with a, you know, walked out with a huge flag and like Sinead right. O'Connor singing and like you're, right. you know, you're, you're making a big scene when you're in your normal life. And there's a showmanship that's got to be a part of it. If you want to, if you really want to make a splash financially in MMA, I just hate that, man. I mean, in, in boxing, that is not the case. You can make so much more money in boxing. Not that everyone does. Right. Boxing is kind of gross in a different way where there are these people who are, who are brought up mm-hmm. as champions. Like, okay, this guy's going to be one of our champions. And there are these other people who are brought up just to be tomato cans for the, for the, to, to pad the champions records. Like this guy's never going to make it as a champion, but he's very talented, just not talented enough. He's like B plus talented. So we're going to put him up against so-and-so as a stepping stone to get to so-and-so with the expectation that he will definitely lose. And so, you know, he's fighting just to kind of feed his family. Meanwhile, this other guy who they, they're trying to build up into the next Floyd Mayweather makes real money. And it's, it's just gross. They're not, so you got, you got people who make it to the very highest levels of the sport as far as like their name on the roster who have not necessarily ever really been challenged in the way that MMA guys are when they get up there. Like when you, when you see somebody in MMA, who's like 15 and one, that dude is serious. Right. But, uh, but there's, once somebody has been at the top tiers of MMA for a while, there's almost nobody that has a record like that because you, they are, they're pitting the best against the best. So you've even got legends. I mean, legends of the sport, hall of famers who have got records like 20 and eight or something because they've, they've been going against other champions for like two thirds of their career. Randy Couture, that guy Natural. was a champion. You know, he, he got into MMA later in life, but he was still like, he was fighting when he was like 30, I think, or 31. Mm-hmm. And then he kept fighting and he was, he was champion pretty early. And he just kept getting, by that point, he was going up against other champions his whole career, practically. He retired and he was like 48 or something. Right. So, you know, meanwhile, you've got Floyd Mayweather, who's quote unquote, never lost. Yeah, but he right, was also right, ex- right. extremely selective on who he fought and at what point yep. in their career he was fighting them. Correct. So you, I mean, you've got him fighting against like Manny Pacquiao or whatever. Yeah. Or Pacquiao, but. Yeah, way, way past Pacquiao's prime and in exactly. what was a hundred million dollar money grab. I'm even thinking. I to, watched it, that fight in your basement. Doc. I know. And so, but, but that brings up a great point in the sense that early and only because I admit I, I follow a lot of this stuff. So Floyd Mayweather is a great example though, because early in his career, before he ever made that type of money and, and you can look at YouTube videos, it was like, he was a, he was a different fighter, still very defensive, but, but you could actually see incredible talent. And, and actually when he was facing that, you know, the type of competition just to build up to that, when he really had to, when he was quote unquote, pretty boy Floyd. It was much different. People didn't really care nearly as much. He didn't make nearly as much money. All of a sudden, when he becomes Money Mayweather and he starts flashing all of these things and doing all of these theatrics and stuff, and people are saying, oh, I can't wait for that guy to lose. And he gets more selective and picks and chooses. Now, all of a sudden, the money really starts flowing in. Well, now you've just totally flipped the idea of competition on its head and the idea of what you're supposed to be doing. So I'm I'm definitely with you in that. And and at least with the UFC, because it's an organization that 
has people that you know you're going to have to continue to fight at a certain level and you're going to have to fight at a certain pace, you're going to get a better overall product with the competition as opposed to boxing, which is the wild, wild west where, yeah, you literally just, you craft the schedule, you craft who you fight when, teasers of who can fight who that don't happen for five or six years even. Uh, it's just, it's a bizarre way to look at at sports. Um, and, and I actually, to bring it back to, to the book, you take someone who's a champion and recognizes that he doesn't have the dramatics of his opponent and decides, what can I do? What can I do to, 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 to bring this, you know, major attention? And it's like, what's the one piece of ammunition that I got? And it's like, personal life be damned. I'm going to use this. This is my one silver bullet. And I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. And never mind that it's going to destroy a person's life. But if I do this now, then what does this do for my career? What does this do for my family? All those things. And to just to just throw something like that out there. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the duality of the title, kill a man, you know, not just the death of DJ, but also the attempt to kill James's career, you know, and, and his secret. And so he doesn't die physically, but his life as he knew it dies and, and the double life. So I just I loved the, the duality of the title. Thanks. Um, yeah, that actually came from an Emil Griffith quote. Um, the, the, the title, Kill a Man, yeah, it refers to, to uh, what's his name, God, the bad guy, um, Derek Waldron does to um, to uh, James Belly, but also what James wants to do to him. Like he's he's training with the guy who killed his dad because he wants that knockout power that he can use to kill. Yeah. He wants to also kill mm -hmm. a man in the ring. Yeah. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't feel like he has the power in his hands to do it and wants yeah. that power. Yeah. But also, there, there's yeah, an Emil Griffith quote where he's he said, like, um, I love a man. I can't actually. I can't remember the quote offhand. Shoot, if I'd known we're gonna get to that, I would have <laughs> something about like if I killed a man and people forgive me, but if I people, but if I love a man, people think I'm evil or something like that. That's, yeah, yeah, I do remember. I, I I was gonna say I I don't remember the exact quote, but yeah, as soon as you mentioned, I'm like I I do remember him saying something along those lines. And Xavier, I think, is just such a, a really compelling character in this as well because. You know, he's got the difficulty of living with what he did, plus the unfortunate stigma attached and the homophobia and everything like that. Was there anybody, I mean, aside from from the ML Griffith story, was there anything else that you sort of drew upon to create Xavier? Because we, we really only ever get to see Xavier as as the, the older man you know, in the story, but was there anything that you sort of worked with, with Steve on this and, and the two of you sort of how you crafted Xavier and what happened to him over the course of his life to get him to the point that we see him at now in the quote unquote present? Uh, mostly Emil Griffiths, really. And I looked up that quote just now because it was killing me. So it says, uh, <laughs> I kill a man and most people forgive me. However, I love a man and many say this makes me an evil person. That's what he said. So it's about I, I, um, I crafted him around the as far as his as who he is and his figure in MMA. I crafted him around those early pioneers. Like when, when MMA first started, when, when UFC, the, the UFC first began, it was kind of like the uh, <laughs> like the little kid, like the little kid superhero thing. What if Wolverine fought? so-and-so, like who would win? What if Batman fought Wolverine? And what if Captain America fought Superman? What if it was kind of that approach where you take a, you know, a Kempo fighter, put him against a sumo wrestler or a boxer against one, a, 
I remember watching those early VHS. One man in the very first UFC wore a boxing glove, like a single boxing glove in the ring. I remember that. Right. It was just such a mess. No one knew what to do. No, no weight classes, not really any rounds. Basically, I think it was like a half hour. He'd get in there and he'd fight until somebody falls, you know, until somebody can't get up. It was just this crazy thing. So most people were very one dimensional. And um, Xavier, I I envisioned him as, you know, a striker with incredible power in his hands. Uh, Beyond that, it was mostly just crafted by the the Emil Griffith story and what that what that killing did to him after that. Like it changed his fighting style. It kind of I won't say ruined his career because he was a literal champion. He's one of the greatest of all time. But um, it definitely haunted him. And I wanted to see a man who had been haunted, like who kind of became a different fighter after that and sort of in the end sort of lost everything, lost his chance at real greatness because of that that uh, event and how it affected him, you know, throughout his life after that. And, uh, and last, I, I really don't want to spoil anything, but the ending I thought was a very interesting take on it. Was there any consideration given to a complete happy ending? I'm, I'm, I'm really <laughs> trying not to spoil again too much. Was there any consideration given to that? Or was it like, that's, that's too much for him to have ostensibly overcome? Yeah, actually, when I, when we were putting this together, it made sense to like the the happy like the the pure happy ending thing um, made sense to me. And Steve had envisioned a very different ending, and I was like, "Look, we just can't do that. <laughs> like we I can't as we can't do it. We can't otherwise. I, what's, it, what's this all yeah, been for?" Yeah, just to jump in a little bit on that piece, I'll be honest. Re, like as I was reading it, I'm, I, I this says a lot about me. I w- I was like, oh. I really hope this has some sort of happy resolution because I could see, I could really see a negative, like a really dark ending from that. And and the fact that it didn't, once again, not to spoil everything, but the fact that it didn't actually gave me a lot of hope. And and that's the thing about that, about the comic in total. I, I felt like it was a, as much as I said, like, oh, wow, this is exactly how I feel it would turn out. It really did give the idea, and and I could also see that. I could see people being able to accept that, especially based on the merits of what is happening in real time. And that's the part that I think still attracts me to to fighting is all other sports we look at as metaphors for what men or people in general, because obviously women are involved too, of what people do in terms of will. Fighting is the only one that really gets to the core of it. What happens when 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 two people are willing to test their wills against one another in every possible capacity? And despite all of the other things going on outside of it, be it the the social things, the financial things, all of that stuff, when two people are actually in the octagon or in the ring or whatever. That gets at least to a to a certain degree that gets silenced. There are still clearly outside forces that can change like the official results but everybody knows what they see everybody or if you're in the ring you know what you felt and you know what you did and and ultimately that's what you have to live yeah i mean there's a big originally this book was going to be two volumes the first one was going to end right as he was about to go out in that first fight Mm -hmm. um not first fight but like the the mid fight when he was uh he got a shot at this other fighter and and that one you know, he technically won, but was getting booed. And everyone's like, no, he, he saw like, I don't have no one's in my corner. Like no one believes in me. No, one's, no one accepts me for who I am. Steve really wanted the, the last fight to be about accepting 
like James accepting who he is. Like that's that was the real struggle is accepting who he is and and just being who he is and being happy with that. And that's enough. And I was like, that's not enough. <laughs> that is not enough. The other part of the of the the struggle he's doing is getting the thing that he that he really wanted to achieve. Like, and it's not about necessarily the belt. It's about facing his enemy, you know, his tangible living enemy who did this to him. And obviously accepting yourself is a huge deal. But if he still kicked to the curb and still loses his the whole thing he he always worked for and all that. It's not, yeah, we, we, uh, we went around about that ending quite a bit, but in the end, the one we came up with, I thought is the perfect ending that neither one of us would have come up with alone. Cause now, yeah, I wish we could spoil it, but we can't spoil it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was the, 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 okay. So, you know, we see the truth of Terry Brown's role. We see, uh, the audience reaction. We see Derek Waldron's reaction. We see James's reaction, Xavier's. Everyone know what they saw. Everyone knows what happened. And that is enough. So I, I really liked how it turned out. And I get, it exposes Terry Brown. And I don't know, I really dug it. So I, I was very happy with how it came out. No, no, I'm, I'm not saying at all that this, it was a bad ending. It was just, like I said, from, from my perspective, I was like, I wonder if they could have given just like a little <laughs> bit more. But I was like, no, that no, would have been I, like the... I thought the, it was perfect. The, I thought it was I thought it was perfect, especially no, I, I, I agree, especially especially for for the the sport itself that I'm like, OK, that like I said that uh, throughout the book, I'm like, OK, either this person is one of the greatest researchers for MMA imaginable without having knowledge of it or this person knows about MMA either way. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah. And and the art as well, uh, you know, not to that's obviously not your purview, but I thought the art did such a fantastic job of telling the story just as much as the words did, because obviously a book about fighting, you need somebody who is going to to portray the fights in a realistic fashion and, and draw you in with the imagery and the fluidity and the power just as much as a story. And I thought that the book uh, certainly did that. Thanks. Yeah. Al is also a talented artist and a mixed martial artist as well. And so he was, he was a nice choice for that because he knew that I could just refer to, um, to a fight or a move or a fighter. And he knew what I was talking about. And sometimes you could see, you could see both of our, st our fighting styles come through the art. Like I would say, okay, so he uh, drops his level to get under the, the hook and then go straight in for the double leg takedown, which is what I would do. And then it would come back and the fighter takes a different approach. I'm like, well, shit, now he did a spinning back and he's this spinning back elbow instead. And now, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I got the impression I was seeing Al's fighting style come through instead, which was totally fine. It, it was just funny to see us almost fighting in the, in the script. <laughs> like <laughs> he does this move and then he comes back. It's like, nope, he did this other thing. And it was fine. Uh, but it, I really liked how it turned out. And it was, he very clearly knows what he's doing. And it was, it was really fun. It was a fun experience. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, uh, very, very compelling and interesting read. So I want to briefly touch on then, I know we spent uh, we spent a lot of time talking about two very real and, and rooted in real stories. Now we're going to shift a little bit to high fantasy with with The Last God, Swords and Sorcery, high fantasy, very D&D-esque. Where did you come up with the idea for the parallel timelines for the story? That, I'm not sure exactly. He, let's see, the premise for the story was that Okay, so my editor actually pitched it to me, not any detail, but he was just like, hey, so this is the quote. I've quoted this a couple of times, but he said, um, would you want to do a horror story, but in a world where there's like wizards and shit? 
<laughs> like, <laughs> like that was that was the exact quote. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I do. I want to do that. So yeah, let me see what I can come up with. So to back up a little, Amadeo Torturo, my editor, is hugely into D and D, and when he's when he's not doing comics, he's He's doing tabletop gaming. It's like one of his passions. And he wanted to do, and I, you know, we had worked together before and he knew I was into horror stuff and he wanted like a dark take on a D&D type story. And so I just kind of ran with that and came up with this idea for a, a world in which the fellowship had failed, you know, like it's, I mean, Tolkien is in my, in my blood as far as fantasy stuff. I just, I see my head goes to Tolkien first, but I also like when I was when I was in high school, I read a lot of Dragonlance, and then later on, and actually in the, the Shannara stuff too, the Terry the Terry Brooks books. And since then, you know, of course, Jer- George R. R. Martin, the ones that are done, the ones that are finished, <laughs> get to writing, George. <laughs> yeah, nah, he's he's busy. It's fine. We'll get to it someday. So anyway, I I thought of Tolkien stuff, but in a very, I there are things that Tolkien. Like shied away from in his work that I would love to have seen him tackle. You never really see different religions in his work. I mean, you, if you read the Cimmerillion, you know he's telling you like the the capital T truth of of uh, divinity in that world, but you never see the different religions of different cultures and or any kind of messiness there. You know, and I thought that that'd be kind of cool to see. You never see any kind of racial tension to speak of. There's a little, there's a little bit of that, but not not as much as I would prefer. <laughs> um, I kind of want to see more of the bleakness of the the Robert E. Howard stuff. So I um that's where that kind of came from. And uh sorry, I think I might have gotten away from the question a little bit, but that's that's where the whole story kind of came came from. Yeah. Just kind of taking a little spin on Anthony's question, but basically it and I apologize. My style usually isn't like directly with questions, it's just observations and then you can riff on it. But the thing that comes to mind with me, I've said it on the on this podcast plenty of times, history may not repeat itself, but it sure as hell rhymes. And that's definitely the feel that I get from the last guy. The idea, not necessarily that everything is going to work out exactly the way you expect, but at the same time, you know fully well if people in these same circumstances with these same types of conflicts, these, as you mentioned, like racial tensions, the everything... Misogyny, all all of these different undercurrents of just messy life that doesn't just go away when you quote unquote slay the bad, you know, slay the evil villain or the demon, you know, like that stuff's still gonna be there. It is, and, and yeah, sorry, I, I remember the original question now about the timeline. <laughs> I have, uh, yes, that's uh, I, that's kind of the reason I wanted to show that. I, I wanted to. I wanted to see the world where everything is supposedly fine, like at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then at some point find out that that was all bullshit and actually a very different thing happened. And um, the the message beneath everything is, I mean, it's about the lies we tell our children, like, but the, we portray ourselves as as knowing everything and and really we're just like them. And, um, you know, I wanted to show that. I wanted to show these heroes that actually were much more than, more and less than they portray themselves to be and then show another generation. And to do that effectively, you'd have to eventually find out what actually did happen back in the day. And I thought that gave us a really interesting opportunity to to show basically two adventures at once and kind of show, you know, the new generation on who's kind of been swept up in this adventure and then bit by bit, as it made sense to show what actually happened back in the day. At the time, I was not consciously drawing on True Detective, but I did, I, uh, I did watch and love that first season um and the third season as well but uh, the first season was pretty pretty amazing storytelling and uh 
just I've, I've got a certain certain number, like I always do. I have a certain number of stories that just are deep in me, you know, like that really meant a lot to me and kind of shape how I tell stories, too. And True Detective was one of those. So I would say that's probably that was probably an influence. But it, it was never like a conscious decision, like I'm going to tell two stories at once. It just sort of worked out that way as I started fleshing it out because I wanted to see the characters in their heyday. And then show, and then, but we see them in the future, and this this awful thing is returning and killing them one by one. This horror story that's coming for all of them, uh, one after the next. So yeah, it just sort of became the most efficient and interesting way to tell that story. Yeah, and and of course we're recording this right before the the last book, uh, you know, issue number twelve comes out. But by the time this is released, it will have been out. So I'm very curious to see how this all ends. But one of the things that I that I do appreciate is just the world building and the the little notes afterwards and the the stories that are told and there's songs and such and even the book itself is called like uh, book one of the Felspire Chronicles I believe so how much work is being put into additional stories beyond this because as as I said you know high fantasy isn't really totally my back but I'm I'm getting says says the guy that is currently playing D and D I just started D and D like three months ago and it's like my first exposure into this world so i'm not you know <laughs> cut me cut me some slack bro <laughs> but but it, it is it is drawing me in more and more as a, as a story so are there plans for you know book two of the Fellspire chronicles and if so like what's what, what are the plans there i would love to and i think i speak for ricardo as he, he would love to as well he's um we are both working on on projects for a bit, but I would love to come back to it. They probably won't be as they probably will not all be as long as this one was, but I would love to come back and do it more arcs. I mean, just in the act of writing this story, there was I mean, so many other stories kind of came into existence just in fleshing out the world, making it feel real, you know. When you read a story that's just on its surface writing, like it, when you when you know that you're reading everything that's been written for that story, you can you can just tell. You can tell if the there's no additional stuff that's not on the page. You can you can tell. Whereas, like in uh, as you read, you know, Song of Ice and Fire or anything that Tolkien ever did, you can tell that you're just reading the the surface of this super deep thing. And I didn't want to do the small ball version of that. You know, I wanted it to feel as real and fleshed out and, and old and lived in as those other worlds that that we all love. So, I mean, even basically anytime there's a question, for, okay, for example, in the first issue when I'm drawing or writing a story about, you know, Avender and his buddy are walking through the slave cradles, which is the slave part of town. I'm talking about, the, I, I'm describing the, what the walls look like in the alleyways. And that just kind of like, well, what would they look like? Like how, and that got, and that is answered with another question. Well, how old is it compared to the rest of the city? And that means, okay, how old is the city? Was it always a human city? And it just like one question leads to another question. And I would just try to answer every question that came up. And then that all led to just the world getting bigger and bigger and bigger and older until I finally found out, you know, found out. I, you know, I feel like I'm just discovering the information, not writing it, you know. Uh, the slave cradles were not part of the original city. The original city was an elven city that was created as in like an elven fortress that was eventually conquered by King so-and-so. And eventually this other wall was made around that one, you know, so now we know which walls are made with stone, which ones with clay. And, you know, so in the, in just, uh, in the, the quest to answer one, to, to write literally one sentence description of the walls in the alley. Now I know centuries of history of the city and it took forever. 
<laughs> you know, like writing a, writing a script that way takes forever, but it makes the world just feel more lived in and real, you know? And like uh-huh. for, later in that same issue, you see the palace on fire and there's a statue on the front of this woman holding a shield and spear. I never asked for her to be there. Uh, Ricardo just added her in. And the thing is, the Tirgaladin uh, culture is very patriarchal. It's all about men. And women kind of are not a big deal in, in their importance compared to the the men. And um, it didn't make sense for her to be there. But I'm not going to ask him to take it out because she looked awesome. And I was like, OK, so if she <laughs> if she's on the palace in armor, she must be super badass. And like there I mean, in history, we've had these Joan of Arc characters. So who is she? And that led to the creation of Q Lee, Queen of Rivers, who was uh, one of the big stars of the back matter that was in a lot of these issues. So now I've got, I know Aculi's entire life and not just for that back matter, but also for other stories that have come up since then. So, I mean, we could, I could do two more chapters just about her. Um, you know, we could do book two and three of the Felspar Chronicles just about Aculi and her adventures. Not that we're going to do that. I mean, I'm, there's, I could say the same thing about 20 other characters. So in the, in the development of the story, so many other stories kind of came into existence to flesh out the one that you have read. Yeah. And when, when we spoke to Erica Schultz um, a while back, I think it was maybe for the, the 12 Devils Dancing, you talk about the oh, fact yeah. that you can tell how much work was put in when you see the secondary characters and you go, I want to know what's going on there. Like, I'm cool with this story, but who's who's this side character and what's their deal and stuff? And so that to me is the sign of a writer who has done their work. And it is obvious from the the breadth of information that is that was in the story and the back matter and everything like you you did your research son and i will i if you dm i will be there like (laughs) thank you i'm sure you i'm sure you make a fantastic dm i will do whatever quest you you come up with and like i said i'm only a couple of months into it myself although i say this and i've got like you know a d20 sitting on the desk in front of me i got my (laughs) My dice we play on, you know, Friday nights. I'm a tiefling rogue. So, oh my goodness! Um, I'm just, I'm just realizing that our listeners are getting so much of the other random stuff that Anthony and I are into, and <laughs> this it didn't is, even turn out this way. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I, didn't think, so, I didn't even think it was going to go along these lines. This is so cool. <laughs> it, it, it is cool. So, uh, so you know, like I said, by the time this comes out, uh, issue twelve will have been out. So, so go pick that up and, and finish the story. So, Superman and Alien. I just want to end on on those. Superman, you're you're taking over for Brian Michael Bendis. What are some of the things that you've got planned for Clark and the stories? And what are you sort of looking to do? And I, it's it's a hack question to say, what are you going to do differently from Brian? But what are some of the where are some of the areas that you want to focus on for for Superman because he is just such a well of incredible stories over 80 years. Man, I I love what Superman means to means to the world, what he means to the, to Earth and to America and to Metropolis. But I want to see what he what he means to the universe, you know, the multiverse. I thought Bendis did an amazing job humanizing Superman, and um, he really kicked the tires of the character and the cast and everything, and figured out what what worked and where he wanted to make changes and. Um, you know, and there, he took big swings and made a lot of changes to the status quo, which I respect. It was, I mean, some super ballsy moves. Not everyone loved it. I mean, like there are people that got pissed about the John thing, about giving up the secret identity. There are a lot of changes in the status quo right now. 
uh, like Jimmy Olsen owns the the planet. Like there's a lot of a lot of changes that happened. I tend to not kick the tires in the same kind of way, but I, what I do, what I prefer to do, is well, plus it's already been done. Like what I'm I'm taking the cards that have been dealt where where Clark is now, and I feel like there there are you know like it or love it or hate it, there are opportunities now with John, the United Planets, and all these things. We have these opportunities to tell different kinds of stories than we were able to before. Um, so I'm kind of running with that. We're going to see more of the context of the United Planets and um, and what the, the Kent family means to you know, the universe now. I don't feel the need to dig super deep into the the Daily Planet cast right now because that's been we spent so much time with the planet lately. Um, I'm willing to let that that rest for now and instead not focus so much on the man and Superman, but the super in Superman and and see him at his most epic. And I want to see these huge cosmic epic stories. That's what I want to do. I, mean, I remember looking back when I was a kid, I had this annual issue of Superman holding up a sword. And I was just captured. I was like, oh, my God, that looks so amazing. And I was, you know, I'm like a little kid. But it um, and the story not being super weird, <laughs> but but that cover looked rad. And uh, it's sort of that's one of those things that kind of it's an image that captured me. And um, and now I'm basically building a story around that image, like where I just I want to see Superman at his most epic. And that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. I'm really exploring the super and Superman, but also what he means as a as a as a person. I want to see I want to remind the world that it's not his powers that really make him who he is. That's kind of my mission statement. Like his his powers should never be the point. The powers are the the vehicle through which we see how incorruptible he is, if that makes sense. You're singing my song. You're singing my song. Oh, oh, this is something that I have been praising ever since I was a child. To, okay, so, so just a little background. The way I got into comics in general was through pretty much Superman. And don't get me wrong. I loved reading Marvel stuff. I loved reading Batman. I loved reading other DC stuff. I would get my hands on not just the regular Superman run. I would look for every alternate universe or what if story or anything, because it seemed like all of the stories came back to that one thing that Superman is meant to be the best of us. And if you can remember that, you can do just about anything else with the character, you know? So so from that standpoint, just to hear you say something that kind of, you know, resonates in my mind. I, I don't know. I, I just. That, yeah, that that triggered something in my brain. Uh, not that I wasn't interested before, but I mean, that that's an impressive thing to say. It's something that I think uh, gets a little thrown away only because the biggest complaint is, oh, well, you you know, what else can you do with Superman? He's Superman, you know, like you could do anything like that's that's not even close to the point. Yeah, agreed. And people always say eh, Superman's hard to write or he's hard to read or whatever because he's just he's too powerful or he's too perfect. He's just a big boy scout and all that. I refute that. Like I, first of all, I mean, even just physically, he he tangles with things that are powerful enough to kill him all the fucking time. <laughs> like he's, I mean, yeah, he's powerful, but it's not like he's the only powerful thing that's out there. We see him fighting strong stuff all the time, so that's not like you can't give him physical challenges. But also, I refute the fact that you have to make him somehow broken or flawed to make him interesting. Like he's. He is meant to be the best of us. Like you said, I literally say that in my first issue. <laughs> like if you've, I'm not sure if you guys read the first issue of Worlds of War, but the first two Worlds of War, Future State Worlds of War 1 and 2 together make up my mission statement on Superman. The first issue is humanity's statement on who Superman is, like what he means to us. 
And the second issue is Superman's statement on who we are, what we mean to him. Are you listening, Zach? Do you hear this? <laughs> <laughs> we see a, uh, we read an op-ed article that, that Clark Kent wrote about a specific person. And it, it just, it's a parallel for it. Basically, it tells us who, who Superman is. That is my mission statement on who Superman is. And then that's, it kind of introduces everything I do after that, like the, my actual like, monthly run that comes later. But um, loving it. Loving yeah, it. We'll, I, I, we'll be adding that to the poll list. No question. I, I just want to uh, see, I want to see a, you know, after, especially this year, <laughs> I want to see somebody who absolute power has not corrupted. You know, like absolute power is his, but he, well, just about, but he, he wields it with absolute humility and compassion. And that's, that's what I want to see from Superman. I want to feel that same, I want to hear John Williams trumpet lines in my head when, as the S shield comes on screen. I want to feel that, that I felt as a kid. I want to feel that whenever I read him. Oh man, uh, you're singing my song. So, <laughs> uh, so pivoting to the complete opposite, almost of Superman alien. Um, <laughs> this other how, thing yeah. This other thing, uh, you know, you talked earlier about the horror. I think there's so much room for that here. Um, how much of the existing mythology is going to be in the book and how much freedom do you have to work with the story? You know, there's obviously a very huge IP and I just want to know sort of what what your your starting base is for this and where we're going to go. Um, I want to start very much in the the world of the movies. I really I have a lot of respect for all the Dark Horse stuff that has been put out. A lot of that stuff is super great. They did so many arcs. They got real creative and some of them took such big, bold steps. And, and, and I mean, some of them like stood on the shoulders of previous arcs a little bit too. And so we've got stuff like the Royal jelly that comes from the, the eggs and, you know, that is a narcotic and you've got the, all the different, different iterations of aliens that we've seen that come from different species. And we've seen other alien races and we've seen Android xenomorphs that speak English. And like, there's just, they took such bold steps that it's hard to, put them in the same mental box as the films. It doesn't seem plausible in the same way that the films do. You know, if you, if you only ever experience the films with the exception of resurrection, which I feel like was a huge misstep. But if you, if you just take the prequels and alien one through three, I feel like those tell, have a very specific universe that they, they, that makes sense together. You know, I wanted these, I want these stories to take place in the same universe as those movies. I won't mean, it doesn't mean we're not going to take big steps and do creative things and, and introduce and add to the mythology because as, as we've established i love doing that i love like world building is why i'm in comics and we're going to world build for sure but when we start this first arc especially we're going to start from the places in the same time period as the second film the james cameron film and that's where we're going to live at first um we're going to see you know a lot of the same through lines and subplots that we saw in those original films where, you know, with the androids and the whale Utani corporation. And we're going to see the aliens start from a place that we recognize. Um, but also we, it's tricky because we have to kind of dance this line where you want to, in that first movie, man, when the, when the, the chest burster pops out of John Hurt, <laughs> it's like this, oh my God, what am I seeing? Movement, moment that you just can't replicate. It's like the most horrible thing. Just, you just feel so gross and, and like shocked at what you're seeing. You've got to replicate that feeling again, but you can't just show the same thing as we showed before because we've seen it now. And the, I think that the, the Giger alien is the perfect, the, the perfect expression of fear on film. Perfect. Like you, for my money, you can't do better than, than Giger for horror on film. No argument here. 
But so you, I don't want to change that. You can't improve on that. It's got this horrible perfection. That's like, this is it, you know, but you've got to, you've got to develop that fear in some ways that I think the, the prequels and, and sequels did beautifully. Like, you know, the first movie you've got the classic xenomorph and the chestburster and the other stuff, like the, the ovomorph and they, just the idea of their, their, the idea of their life cycle. So gross and intrusive. And then in the second movie, you take another step in. Now you're in the nest and you see the queen and it's just so badass. And then you see another one that's kind of, that comes from a quadruped. It keeps t- taking these little steps forward in ways that make sense. And then the prequels, we again continue to see the development. But um, it all feels like Giger. And that's that's very important to me that it all feels like it's of the same mind, you know? Yeah, well, for for me, I mean, obviously the, the chest bursts are a very iconic scene. But for me, the best part of that that first movie is where Ripley knows that it's just her and the alien and she's she's looking and it's you know moving around the ship and you don't know where he is and then the the scene with Jonesy and the 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 fake scare and then you know she's like oh I'm safe and then the background moves and you realize that the alien has been there all along and that's the horror stuff that I love and so you know if if this book captures even a, a tenth of that for me I'm gonna just lose my shit. Um, <laughs> there will be some of so, it's, I really, I love the vibe of the first movie where it's all claustrophobic and you're trapped in there, like exactly mm-hmm. what you're describing, where you're trapped in there with this thing that you can't see, and then it's there and it's eating you. It's like you're just you're trapped. There's nowhere to go. You're stuck in space. You're just a blue collar dude. What are you supposed to do? And then in the second one, it's such a different kind of movie. It's like the the you know the space marine stuff with right. the, with you know aliens everywhere it's such a different kind of horror and it plus that movie cast such a long shadow like i if i had to pick a movie i guess i'd say i prefer the first one but they're so they're both so iconic and amazing you can't just you can't walk back that second movie because it's just such an integral part of what alien lore is now so i really t- i try to take the best of both those movies and work them into the story works for me all right, so I know we said we were going to, oh, we'll, we'll be in shortly, and we just, we kept going, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you just, there, there's so much here, and there's there's so much, you know, we didn't we didn't get into Warlords of Appalachia or, you know, anything else, and I know Doc also really wanted to talk about the the jazz and comics essay, because that was just... <laughs> That's a side conversation. Don't worry about that. <laughs> we'll just have to do it again. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we'll we'll just have to have you back, you know, once, uh, once Superman and Aliens have been on the, the shelves for a few months, we'll, we'll bring you back to talk about that stuff. So, Philip, is there anything else you need, you need to plug, uh, you know, or anything else you want to promote? Uh, no, usual thing. I'm, I mean, yeah, Last God 12 should be on the shelves by the time this comes out. I'm really excited about that to wrap up the whole series. And Superman is coming out. So we, um, we've got, in February, we have Superman Worlds of War number two out and uh, uh, House of L as well. And then in March, the monthly, go back to the numbered monthly titles, Superman and Alien also. So lots, lots coming out. Well, very much looking forward to it. Uh, philipkennedyjohnson.com is, is your website, right? That's right. I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the stuff. Go check him out on the socials. Pick up those books. Pick up Last God, Issue 12, and then tell your local comic shop to uh, put aside uh, Superman. Uh, what number are you starting with? What's, or, is, or is it going to be like a reboot of, of a one? or No, it actually comes back in March... Let's see, in March, Superman 29 and Action 1029 come out. And those two issues tie together. This We're not tying, the, the, the issues will not bounce back and forth between the two titles, except for that first month. Like there's a, there's a two-issue arc with Superman 29 and Action 1029 
And those do tie together. That's the Golden Age Part 1 and 2. And then from that point on, Superman and action become two different stories. All right. So a lot of adding to the pull list I foresee in my future. So uh, next episodes, uh, we're covering Levana Blackburn from the Lunar Chronicles, Superman Red Sun, and Black Mask. So uh, you can check out all of our episodes on our website, capesonthecouch.com. And we are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Capes on the Couch. Philip, again, thank you so much. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure, and we definitely hope to, to speak to you again in the future. Gentlemen, this is super fun. Thanks for having me on. Sorry about all the profanity. <laughs> oh, that's that's oh, quite all right. About that. <laughs> the like uncensored it. stuff makes the Patreon feed. Uh, Patreon.com slash Capes on the Couch. You can subscribe at any level. For Doc Issues, I'm Anthony Sitko. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Capes on the Couch podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Dr. Issues is a psychiatrist, but he is not your psychiatrist and does not have knowledge of your individual situation. For any personal mental health concerns, please consult your own health care providers. For medical emergencies, please call 911 or the designated number in your area immediately. Remember that you are not alone and help is out there.